Well, good morning. So glad to be here. If you'll turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 6, I'd love to start our time together with reading God's Word. Exodus 6, we're going to read verses 1 through 12 uh, and then jump into our time this morning uh, discussing God's promises. So if you'll read with me, that would be great. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 6, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips." Father, we thank you this morning for your word, grateful for uh, the challenge it proposes every time we study it to our hearts. Uh, It is active, it is living, it is breathing, it is the only thing that can bring about transformation in hearts. I pray today that it is clearly taught, so remove my failings, my shortcomings from this moment that we have to hear your word. Thank you for the worship that we have heard all morning in music and in song. Lead us during this time to consider your truths, to understand your promises a little bit better. Most importantly, help us to know you better when we leave than when we came in. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So glad to be here. I am the teaching pastor at our Malden campus. Uh, Many of you are familiar. I look around the room and see a lot of familiar faces, and I told the first two uh, services this, but I look around the room and I see a lot of unfamiliar faces, and that's great. I love that God is doing some amazing things here. Uh, I love your pastor, Dallas. I know you do as well. Dallas and I have gotten to know each other really well, especially as I've stepped into this role as teaching pastor, which only happened less than a year ago. Uh, I wasn't doing this for the first 15 years of ministry here at Upstate Church. I was doing something else, but God opened the door, and I have been uh, truly blessed to get to know he and Jenna and the girls, and I hope Uh, as some have already said, that they are getting some rest. I do want to take a minute and say thanks to Chad and Eden and the team. What a great job uh, in leading us all morning. So grateful to you. What what an amazing supply of uh, resources God has given us. So thank you all for using your gifts, all of you, for uh, his glory. Um, 
So I also want to say um, it was Dallas's birthday this past week. Uh, he always does a great job when he comes to Malden of uh, talking me up, and I always seem to get lots of Starbucks gift cards after that. Uh, he's not a Starbucks fan. Um, I don't know what to tell you to get him, but if you missed his birthday, I would just say better late than never. Go ahead and get him something, um, but uh, be in prayer for them as they uh, are trying to get a little bit of rest. Another thing as far as introductory uh, uh, comments, and then we'll jump into to the word. This past week, and this is not a political statement, so I, I pray you don't take it that way. That's not why we're doing what we're doing today at all of our campuses when, when we say this. It's, a, I think, a biblical principle, a biblical statement, uh, decision of the Supreme Court this week having ripple effects not only in our nation but around the world. Uh, so here's what I would like to say to you and to me as, as we now journey into this aftermath of that decision. I would say uh, from a biblical standpoint, we celebrate life. And here's what I would say to that. We want to be grateful to God, but we also want to be generous to others. And so please do your very best uh, to strike the balance between the two because we're called to do that. Yep. Uh, we, don't, we don't have the luxury, according to God's word, to be on one or the other. Uh, we're called to do both. So um, as Forrest Gump says, that's all I have to say about that. And uh, we'll jump into the main idea of the morning. So the main idea today is this. God's promise to redeem provides solid footing in the face of opposition and doubt. God's promise to redeem provides solid footing in the face of opposition and doubt. Now, just to, uh, from a, from a uh, bigger, uh, large scale, we've been studying through, I think this is week four now that we've been studying through Exodus for a few weeks. God is doing a work. He's beginning to do a work. He's beginning to move on the behalf of his people Israel. He has heard, as we've already read in chapter two and three, he has heard their groanings. He has remembered his covenant, not that he forgot. Hopefully you'd study that language as we went through that series, not that he forgot, but he is going back to the covenant he made to, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And he is beginning to move based on the covenant he made. And today as we move into what the promises of God and what this particular promise is all about, my hope for, for me, and it has been this way since I've been studying it this week, and for you, my hope is, is that you would understand not only God's promise to the nation of Israel here a little bit better, but you would also understand what God's promises to his people mean in general. Because it's much bigger than just, and I, I don't say that to minimize, but it's much bigger than just God redeeming his people Israel from bondage. Right? God is at work revealing himself to his people. And so what we need to take from that as we follow Christ, and maybe some in the room are exploring what, what following Christ is all about, is that God is always at work revealing himself to his people. Right? And so we see it clearly in this, in this passage in our study uh, of Into the Wilderness as we go through Exodus. So from a big picture standpoint, that's really what we're going to be looking at today are these promises, this promise God has made and what that means for them uh, then and then for us today. Uh, by way of illustration on this main idea, God's promise to redeem provides solid footing. I, I grew up a PK, a preacher's kid. Uh, my dad uh, was saved at a late, in a late age. He was, he was 29 before he came to know Christ radically saved. He was an alcoholic most of his life up to that point, uh, had an encounter with Christ that changed everything about him. Uh, he, he goes from drinking a fifth of liquor every day uh, to following God fully, and he will be the first to give credit where credit is due. He moves into, God calls him into the ministry, 
So he goes from, from having a lucrative career in the newspaper industry to leaving all of that behind with, at that point, a family of three. That would soon expand to a family of six, leaving all of that behind and following God into a call of ministry. Going to school, learning, going to seminary, having small first churches, which some of us guys who come out of seminary into ministry do. You have those experiences. That's my dad. The whole way bringing his family along with him. So I say that to say some of those early years were lean years. Some of those early years we had to scrap together things. Some of those early years honestly were the best years as I look back on them. I will say this though, we used to love to go and get away to the mountains. Some, some of you love the beach more than the mountains. I grew up going to the mountains. I just love the mountains. Uh, it's funny because I married someone who loves the beach, so guess where we go every year? We go to the beach. We don't go to the mountains, <laughs> right? Amen. So um, we go to the mountains. Uh, one of the things that we love to do, there were four of us uh, siblings, and we would love to go, and my dad obviously would love this, because you could go and rent an inner tube for $5 back in those days, late 70s, early 80s. Rent, rent an inner tube, $5 the whole day. You take the inner tube, we would load it in the back of the 78 station wagon, right? And we would go and we'd find a place somewhere in Gatlinburg, is usually where we went, where we would just get on the river and we'd ride all day long. Loved it. $5 a day. One of the things that I learned early on as we were doing that, uh, and it's been years since I've done it, but I can't forget the experience of being on these tubes and then maybe hitting some rapids that we were not necessarily prepared for, right? <laughs> that we, we didn't expect. We were not ready to hit the rapids the way we were uh, riding. And so we hit the rapids, it knocked us off. And one of the first things that you do that I learned to do very quickly is to make sure I found my footing. Nothing else really mattered. Nothing else mattered at that moment. As I'm being turned over and upside down and underwater and around rocks, the tube didn't matter, my siblings didn't matter. The only thing that mattered at that point was that I found sure footing. Whether that be on a rock or whether if I was tall enough and I was in an area where I could find the ground, I would want to make sure my feet touched so that I could get my bearings and so that I wouldn't be just tossed to and fro all the way down the river. I wanted to find my bearings. I wanted to find my sure footing. Now, when we come to God's promises, the connection there is God's promises for you and I as sure footing. We stand on his promises. There's a hymn that comes to mind maybe for a lot of you in the room. We stand on God's promises because of what he has said, not just the words of the promise, but the person who backs the words up. He is faithful to do what he said he's going to do. It is sure footing for those of us who do not have or, or did not have a rudder, as Paul talks about in the New Testament, being blown to, to and fro all around because you are rudderless. You have no anchor. There is nothing guiding you, and you are just tossed here and there. You may have lived most of your life that way. You may be living your life that way today where you don't know where you are. You do not have sure footing, and you're trying to figure out what's coming next. Can I encourage you today, those of you who are Christ followers, can I encourage you today, and those of you who are not, God's promises provide sure footing for us, and we can place our feet on those promises. Today, we're going to look at a little bit closer God's promises to the nation of Israel, and then make, obviously, some connection to where we are today and where you are today. So there's three, there are three realities that we're going to look at. I'll list them for you, and then we'll go through each one, and we'll see these in our passage. The three realities are this. There is always opposition. Uh, we are prone to doubt. And then last, God's promises are sure. In other words, God's promises are certain. God's promises are enduring. So we're going to look at those three things as it relates to the promise of God. So the first one, there's always opposition. 
If you go back and look in chapter 5, hopefully you've been reading through as we've been going through this series. If not, I would encourage you to start today. But the chapter before the chapter that we read today, chapter 5, I'm not going to read obviously all of that. This is Moses' first encounter with Pharaoh since being called by God to be Israel's deliverer. This is his first chance, his first encounter in going in front of uh, Pharaoh to ask Pharaoh to let his people go. And he has met with intense opposition. Not only from Pharaoh, the, the expected opposition, but also from others around him, even his own people. So from the obvious place, he finds opposition from Pharaoh. If you go and you look back in chapter 5, a couple of verses here for you to look at. Look at verse 2 if you have your Bibles. It says, But Pharaoh said, Who is this Lord? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, this Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh's response should be one that is expected. Pharaoh's not a God-fearer. Pharaoh's not a God-follower. He has many gods, and he serves and worships many gods. He doesn't recognize this God that Moses is coming to him proclaiming. And so his response is one that should be expected. I don't know your God, and I'm certainly not going to let these people go to serve a God I don't know. So his response is one that should be expected. Skip down to verse 4. It says, But the king of Egypt <clears throat> said to them, Moses and Aaron, Why do you take the people away from their own work? Get back to your burdens. Moving on down to verse 6, The same day Pharaoh commanded the, the, the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, saying this, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as it is uh, best... Let, uh, or as in the past, let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall not uh, impose, or you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifices. Let heavier work be laid on the men. Now what, what Pharaoh is doing in this situation is trying to figure out why he's being asked to let the people go. Moses is asking, let my people go so we can go into the wilderness. Pharaoh translates that as the people have extra time on their hands. If they can go three days into the wilderness, and if they can offer sacrifices to their God, whoever this God is, then obviously they're being idle. That's the word we just read. Obviously they have time on their hands. And if they have time on their hands, then here's what we're going to do. We're actually going to require them to make bricks and, and actually to require them to get their own straw, to go out and gather their straw and do that themselves while not reducing the amount of bricks that they are making. So there's always opposition. In this scenario, it was from Pharaoh. We also see opposition to Moses from his own people. If you look in Exodus 5 down to verse 20, it says, They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them. <clears throat> As they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord... Look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. There will always be opposition when God begins to fulfill a promise in your life that he's made to you. There was in the lives of Israel. Freedom presupposes bondage. In other words, if I have never experienced bondage, I have no idea what freedom is. If you have never experienced bondage, you have no idea what it really means to be free. I won't even desire this particular freedom. You don't even have the desire for it. 
Now, can I say this to everybody in the room who may say, well, I haven't been in any kind of bondage before. Let me just say this. All of us are born into spiritual bondage. So Romans is pretty clear. In fact, very clear. No one in the room, no one in the world is born outside of being bound to sin. You are born into it. No one is born perfect. There was only one who was born and lived perfect. His name was Jesus, and we happened to crucify him, right? There's only one who has done that. We actually are all born into bondage. So we all experience spiritual bondage. The issue is whether you have recognized spiritual bondage or not. And the other issue is, and the reality is, is whether you have been released from and freed from that spiritual bondage. And when you are freed from it, you understand what bondage is all about. And you may be here today and you've never experienced that. My prayer today is that even in this room today, you would experience that. Scripture says today is the day of salvation. So I would pray that for you even today. God is bringing freedom. He is with his people Israel and he still does that today. As soon as Moses <coughs> begins to request freedom for the people, pressure is put on the source of bondage. It's like a constrictor. He begins to, he begins to confront Pharaoh with let my people go. Pressure begins to be put onto that system of bondage. A promise of deliverance, if it, if, if it is to be fulfilled, means entire systems and deep-seated patterns of behavior must be confronted and must be broken. If a promise of deliverance, if that is to be fulfilled, it means entire systems and deep-seated patterns of behavior must be confronted and must be broken. And that's what we see Moses doing here as God's calling him to confront this with Pharaoh. And he is facing intense opposition from within and from without. Listen, as you and I pray for deliverance from bondage for loved ones, friends, even maybe in our own lives, <clears throat> some of you in the room are bound by something. You know Christ, but you've been bound in this sin most of your life. Let me encourage you in this. As you and I pray for deliverance from that bondage, and I hope you are praying for that, expect significant opposition. Expect significant pushback. It will not be easy. God will not bring deliverance from bondage in your life by taking the easy street. There will be pushback. There will be opposition. Why? Because in order to free you from bondage, entire systems, sin in your life, patterns of behavior have to be broken. So there will be significant, necessary opposition. Listen, promises remain promises until opposition begins to move the needle. When opposition begins to come in your life, when pushback begins to come in your life, when resistance begins to come in your life, maybe at that point you can begin to understand God is at work trying to free me from this bondage, but I need to understand and expect that there will be opposition. It will not happen otherwise until God begins to move and bring about that kind of pressure to break entire systems and, entire, and in deep-seated behavior and sin in our lives and free us from that bondage. So there's always opposition. Point one. Point two, we are prone to doubt. That's what Moses does here. If you skip down to verse 22 and 23 in your Bibles, if you're following along, chapter 5, at the end of chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, it's after this happens and after Pharaoh says, you know what, I take that as an insult. If you've got time to go and worship God for three days 
in the wilderness, then you have time to collect your own straw and make your own bricks at the same quota you, was all, you were always doing it. So he took it as an insult. What does Moses do? Look in verse 22 of chapter 5. It says, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. So Moses is voicing this sense of doubt. God, I t- here's really, if you boil it down to this in a, in a phrase that we are all familiar with, here's what he's saying to God, I told you so. I told you this is not what I was supposed to do. I told you this is not the direction I was supposed to go in. I told you this is not the relationship I was supposed to be in. I told you this was not the career path I was supposed to take. This is what Moses is saying in the, in the face of severe opposition. God, I told you so. And so he makes a beeline back to God to confront God, if you will, that God is doing something. He's, he's not fulfilling a promise that he said he was going to fulfill. And so doubt begins to enter into Moses' mind. Moses moves in a straight line back to God. Things have gone from bad to worse in these two chapters for the people of Israel. Not only did Pharaoh disregard God and the request from Moses, but he took that as an insult and determined that the people had time to do more, to gather their own straw. Instead of seeing immediate positive results from obedience and surrender, which is what we expect, isn't that what you expect? For God to immediately begin to bless, when we, when we begin to surrender, when we begin to, to be obedient, in our minds, maybe it's just me, but in my mind, you begin to think God is going to immediately start blessing and opening doors and providing a way and answering prayers. That's what we all think on some level, and Moses was no different. God, you said you were going to do this. I've done what you said you were going to do. I surrendered to your call. I've told them what you told Pharaoh what you said, but yet it's gotten worse. That's not how this is supposed to work. That's not how this is supposed to go. Instead of seeing immediate positive results from obedience and surrender to God's plan, Moses and the people experience immediate negative consequences. That's not how his promise is supposed to work. Now, you may think this happened thousands of years ago to a nation called Israel in bondage, but listen, we, we face the same doubts in our life today when we begin to surrender and be obedient to what God's calling us to do. We want things to happen a certain way. And when it doesn't happen a certain way, what do we start to do? God, why? Why did you say it? Why did you ask me to do that? Why did I step out on obedience? This is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. This hurts a whole lot more than I thought it was going to hurt. This is taking a whole lot longer than I thought it was going to take. When our interest is only invalidating our actions and not proclaiming God's purposes. That's what Moses was doing in the beginning of chapter 5. Moses was really hoping God would validate his position. I'm here on behalf of God. He has called me. Moses or Pharaoh, let my people go. I am sure Moses was thinking Pharaoh would immediately respond to that and God would validate his, his behavior and his actions. It's not what God did. When his interest is only invalidating his actions and not proclaiming God's purposes, any visible response that does not directly benefit me is perceived as failure. Any visible response 
any tangible response that doesn't benefit me or validate what I've just done is perceived as failure. In other words, God is not doing what God said he was going to do. And doubt continues to creep in. We've already talked about opposition being essential. You will face the opposition. You should expect the opposition as God begins to redeem and restore. But one of the things that we fight against, and some of us have a difficult time of overcoming and continue to fight against it every day, is this the seed of doubt that the enemy plants in our minds that God is not going to do what he said he was going to do. Man, it started all the way back in the garden, didn't it? With Eve and the serpent. Did God really say? That's doubt. It continues to happen today. We fight against it. When God is wanting to do a work in us and bring about and fulfill the promises he made to us, we will always face that opposition, and doubt will be something we fight all the time. What God expects is an unconditional trust in his unfailing promise. Listen, the journey of a, of a fulfilled promise, the journey of a fulfilled promise initially follows a path we would never approve of. The journey of a fulfilled promise in your life initially follows a path you would never approve of. In other words, you would never choose to go that way. But if God is going to fulfill that promise in your life, he's asking you to step into areas of opposition. He's asking you to stand against doubt. With sure footing, put your foot on his promises and trust him unconditionally. That's what God is calling us to do. It happens all throughout Scripture. Just think of all the people in Scripture that you know of they all face significant opposition. They all face significant doubt as God was bringing about freedom in their own life, redeeming them. Abraham, Sarah, Joseph, Ruth, moving into the Old Testament, John the Baptist, uh, Paul, Peter, the apostles, all of them faced significant opposition as God was bringing about redemption and freedom in their own life. And we are no different. I think it's how God has wired it, where we will face that opposition as he brings about freedom and frees us from significant bondage in our life. I love this quote from Elizabeth Elliot. It says, he makes us wait. He keeps us on purpose in the dark. He makes us walk when we want to run, sit still when we want to walk. For he has things to do in our souls that we are not interested in. I don't know about you, but I, there are many things God, if, in fact, I probably could say unequivocally everything that God has done in my life where initially I didn't want to do it. Significant areas in my life where he's brought about freedom and he's brought about understanding of who he is and exalted him, himself in my life where I would never have chosen to go down that path. I would never have chosen to go in that direction. My soul was disinterested in that. But God was doing something that couldn't have been done otherwise. And he's calling me to go down that path so that he could reveal himself to me. God is working out his promise in my life. There will be opposition. We will face periods, intense periods of doubt. But can we land on this one, the last point of the day? God's promise is sure. God's promise is certain, right? So in, in 6, 1 through 12, we won't read it again, but that's what we read at the very beginning. In God's response to Moses, he doesn't address each component of Moses' complaint. He doesn't pick it apart. Right? He, and he doesn't, he, does, he doesn't explain why things had gotten much worse for the Israelites instead of much better. Moses probably would have loved that. God just explained to me why things just got worse. After I was obedient, after I surrendered, things got so much worse. Why? Explain that to me. He didn't do that. Here's what he did by repeating the phrase in 6, chapter 6, verse 1. You can read it for yourself. He repeats this phrase with a strong hand twice. And here's what he's doing. Simply put, 
he's connecting his promise to himself. He's connecting, I will fulfill this promise, not because of anything you're going to do, Moses, in and of yourself, but because I am the one who's making the promise. I am certain. I am sure. I am faithful. In chapter 3, verse 19, the Lord says, But I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by what? A strong, mighty hand. God is the one working in the background. In other words, God reminds Moses who is, who is able and who is working to bring about his people's deliverance. Now, there's a reality of the Lord here. There's a reality, you could say it this way, of Yahweh. There's covenant language used here where God in chapter 6, 1 through 12 is referring back to a covenant he has made generations ago to Abraham. And he is working to fulfill that in the lives of his people. So there is significant covenant theology. There is significant covenant language being used here. God reassure, God's reassurance to Moses continues with this covenant language, reminding him that he is the Lord. In verse 2, he is Yahweh. He begins at the end of verse 2 and, and, and bookends it in verse 8. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am the God of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That the patriarchs worshipped him by name and that the patriarchal promises included the, their, their descendants' possession of Canaan. All of this is included in that covenant language. The Lord is revealing to Moses, they worshipped me back then. This is what he's saying to Moses. Moses, your forefathers, I am the one that they worshipped back then. I am Yahweh. I am their God. And this same Lord, this same God is the one who will deliver. This generation from bondage and into freedom. Tim Keller says, you cannot judge God by your calendar. God may appear to be slow, but he never forgets his promises. Remember, God is at work when and especially when we cannot see it. Here's how you begin to tell, though, you're facing significant seasons of opposition. That's many times a telltale sign. God is at work in your life to bring about his promise in your life, to bring about freedom in your life to reveal himself to you in a way he hasn't revealed himself to you before. God is at work when we begin to experience those times. The modern mindset, if, if we believe in the promise of God at all, only applies those promises to their life if there's some immediate, tangible benefit to them. A promise is only as trustworthy as the one who gives it. In any relationship that you're in, you know this to be true. They can say all the words they want to say, but if they don't back up those words, then their words are useless. So the promise is only as trustworthy as the one who's given the promise. And God is always trustworthy. The most important reality at this point is the trustworthiness of the one who made the promise. This is the end result of God's work in our life. Revealing himself to us through his promises to be the one who is faithful. And he has done it over and over and over in our lives. Charles Spurgeon said the most important daily habit we can possess is to remind ourselves of the gospel. Remind yourself of the gospel. In other words, remind yourself of what God has done in your life. On your very best day before Christ, you were dead. You could do nothing. Yet God pursued and God came and God's promise was true, and he revealed himself to you, and what was dead was made alive. 
and what was in bondage was made free. That's the God that revealed himself to Moses thousands of years ago. Listen, it's the same God that's revealing himself today. And look, it's the same God who may be revealing himself even in this room this morning to you. And that's what God is doing as he tells us about his promises. Final thought, standing on the promises of God means to trust him in the face of doubt and defiance. Standing on those promises means to trust him in the face of doubt because those times will come and in the face of defiance and opposition because those times will come as well. Tubing down the creek, going back to that illustration that I started with, entering and exiting the river is a key factor when you're tubing down the creek, those of you who have done that before, you want to know where you're getting in, you want to know what kind of course you're going to be riding, and you certainly want to know who's going to be meeting you at the end to get you out of that river, right? You want to make sure. My daddy would drop us off. He would ride in the 78 station wagon down the few miles, the course, just to make sure there were no huge waterfalls that we were going to ride over, make sure everything was, was good. And then he would meet us on the other end, and actually get us out of the river, load us back up, take us back. Now, here's the thing that I thought was, spoke to my heart when I was thinking about this. And maybe, maybe a word to, your da- to the dads in the room today. There are a lot of things my dad taught me that I'm so grateful for. A lot of truths he spoke into my life, and I'm glad he did. But one of the things he taught me that still resonates with a 48-year-old man today who has two kids of his own, one that just graduated high school, one that's a rising junior in college, is this. Do what you say you're going to do. He was present. His presence in our life communicated more significant spiritual truth than anything he would ever tell us. As we're riding down that creek and that river, every time he said he would meet us there, guess what? He was there. He promised to be there and take us out of that river. He was always there to to meet us, always there to get us. So listen, the way I looked at this, his promise got me in the river because he told us he would meet us there. His promise took me down the course of that river because he said it was okay. His presence got me out of the river. So I say to you today, God's promise is certain. It's sure. We can trust in it. We can rest on it. It's his presence that it should lead us to. That should be what we should seek. And listen, he is always faithful. He will always be where he says he's going to be. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this word today. Thank you for the challenge in our our own hearts of of trusting you and of knowing you in a way where, God, if if, if today there's some in the room who who hadn't seen you move in a way where they could say, you know what, God is fulfilling his promise. Doubt is reigning in their minds and in their spirits opposition is everywhere around them that today they would find their footing once again and they would stand on your promises and they would understand that the same God who said I will be with you is the same God who will be with who will be there and who will meet us there those promises are true not because they're they're catchy phrases or nice words those promises are true because you gave the promise and you are sure and you are certain I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.